Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to this 10-part series on health equity. Over the course of this series, we will discuss a broad range of topics connected to health equity. For additional resources and information, be sure to check the podcast notes or visit mphtc.org slash health equity. On today's episode of Share Public Health, we are going to talk about how public health practitioners can implement some of the things we've talked about over the past weeks. This series has covered a lot of big issues, and we don't want to leave you without concrete steps you can take to decrease inequity in your practice and your community. My name is Hannah Schultz, and I work with the Midwestern Public Health Training Center housed at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I am excited to be your host for today's episode. We're going to kick off the episode talking about the importance of diversity in health professions. We'll start today's program talking with Dr. Denise Martinez. Dr. Denise Martinez is the Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine, as well as faculty member and clinician in the Department of Family Medicine. Since her arrival to Iowa in 2008, Dr. Martinez has been an active participant in many diversity and inclusion activities across campus. Her professional interests include cultural competence education, chronic disease management, and women's health. We've invited her to share public health to talk about her diversity, equity, and inclusion work at the College of Medicine and in our broader community, particularly the work she's done with the Summer Health Professions Education Program. Dr. Martinez, welcome to Share Public Health. Thank you so much for having me. So to start off, I know I just shared your kind of professional biography, but can you tell us a bit about what your interest is in these areas? Yeah, so um, I decided when I was really young that I wanted to be a physician. And I decided that because um, I actually saw different family members telling their stories about how they were treated by the healthcare system differently. I, I identify as Latina and I come from a multiracial, multicultural background. And because of that, um, and I know, for example, like my great grandmother was scared of going to a physician because of how she was treated because of the color of her skin or her accent. And um, I remember thinking that that's probably not a good thing. And so I'm the first physician in my family. I'm the first one to ever do something like this in healthcare. Um, but I knew since an early age, not only did I want to be a physician, but I wanted to help change and make medicine um, and healthcare better for all people. So. Part of that is you've been really involved in the student health professions education program here in Iowa. So can you talk a bit about what that program is, how it came about, um, and maybe some of the successes you've seen with that program? Yeah, sure. So um, when I got to college, um, I was thinking I would probably be okay as a pre-medical student. Um, but I remember in my uh, first class, there was a class called General Chemistry, and I got a C in General Chemistry. And my pre-health advisor, I went to a school that was um, a PWI, predominantly white institution. There weren't any other minority pre-med students. And my um, a health advisor at the time said, there's no way that you will ever be a doctor. And um, there was this random flyer um, in my uh, pre-med office at that time, and I saw it saying that there's this program for minority students who are interested in going to medical school. And so I, I decided not to completely not be pre-med, but I was, 
I would say, a secret pre-medical student and just kind of didn't tell anybody and but still kind of pretended that maybe one day I could go to medical school but I really didn't believe it could happen so um, I ended up applying to this summer program and um, you could apply to three of these programs nationally so there's 12 sites across the country at different medical schools and I ended up getting into all three of the sites and I thought wow nobody really applies to this summer program Um, which is actually not true it was really competitive but um in it, uh, the first day, um, the David Acosta, who is uh, was the dean of diversity at the University of Washington School of Medicine, we were in this huge auditorium, which I felt so special to be in. You know, a medical school auditorium. Can you imagine? You know, and it was like I was just feeling like, wow, why am I even here? Um, and he looked at each and every one of us and said, you know, one day we know that each and every one of you will go to medical school. Um, and I thought, wow, they are such liars here <laughs> because there's no way that I will ever get into medical school. Um, but really, by the end of the six weeks, I knew I could do it. And actually, I applied to medical school that next year, and I got into seven medical schools. And so um, programs like this help students like me who didn't realize that, you know, that these opportunities were not just for people way out there that they are they, these opportunities are for people like us and medicine needs people like us because we are interested in treating all different types of people and people from different backgrounds so the summer health professions education program uh, how long has it been at iowa so um the program nationally has been around for exactly 30 years um, but here at Iowa um, I was able to help write the grant and become the um, PI the primary investigator on the grant here um, and so this will be our fourth summer so our um, uh, this will be um, our last year so we've already had three cohorts of 80 students uh, which has been really awesome and these are all undergraduate students yep. so from these, across the country. From across the country. So we have 80 students here um, during the summer. Um, this is a grant paid for by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, um, which really cares significantly about the culture of health and having good health care for all. Um, and uh, this, the students um, apply to the program um, and are selected um, because we see significant potential in who they are. And they're either finishing their freshman or sophomore year of undergrad. And they spend those uh, six weeks with us. That's great. Um, so that means you're about to, you've had nearly 300 students go through the program here. In yes. yes. Um, do you know how many of those are now in med school or in other health sciences graduate programs? Yeah, so uh, quite a few. And right now it's still a little early on the med side because a lot of students will take a year off before they apply to medical school. And they did their program either their freshman or sophomore year, so it's still a little early. But we have quite a few students in pharmacy school now, medical school, dental school, and then even more. I think a lot of students didn't realize or understand what public health was until they did our summer program. And significant amounts of the students have ended up going into public health um, or knowing that they're going to get their MPH before they go into health professional school. That's great. Uh, so I know you're in a med school and we're in a college of public health. So what do you see that are kind of trends or new things happening in the training of people in health sciences 
uh, to help them have an increased understanding and more training in um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and health disparities, and some of these other things that are kind of buzzwords in public health right now? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. I mean, first of all, we know, um, just taking a step back and talking about SHPP, that if you come from different underrepresented backgrounds, you're more likely to treat people from those backgrounds. And so obviously a diverse workforce is really the most important thing. Um, but then also, if even if you don't have a marginal, history of a marginalized identity, um, understanding how to treat people from all different backgrounds well is super, super important. So we talk about those things. Um, we talk about why the system is the way it was. And so much of health disparities has to do with the system and how the system is tr propagating health care disparities. So, for example, um, we know for um, black women in the state of Iowa are six times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. And that isn't necessarily having just to do with the patients. It really has to do with how our system is treating the patients and being open and honest about those conversations and not pretending like those disparities don't exist. So I think talking about the health disparities is really important. The other thing is we talk about implicit bias quite a bit. So what are those unconscious biases that um, help people to make decisions that might not be what they really want to make um, and, and how they think about or treat people from different backgrounds. Um, we talk about microaggression. So what are those little, little slights that people can say that make people never want to see a physician again if that is what the physician said to them and it was a microaggressive comment. Um, we talk about being an upstander. So what if you see something happening um, either to a colleague, a patient, or um, a trainee that is something that is a identity related, that somebody is saying something inappropriate, how do you respond to those things and be an active upstander to that person? Um, so we participate in tons and tons of trainings regarding all of those things because unfortunately those are all, all needed. How are schools and programs at public health or medical schools and other health sciences training our emerging workforce in these areas and having cultural sensitivity, cultural humility, understanding health disparities? Health disparities, as you all know, um, unfortunately we have really, really good data about health disparities and about how prevalent they are and how that not all health disparities have to do with the social determinants of health or the situations that the patients are in. But a lot of health disparities have to do with how the system is actually treating the patients. Um, and a lot of that was built on racism and homophobia and all sorts of things throughout many generations and systems of inequality. And so, you know, the goal of our offices like mine or people in leadership like mine are trying to um, undo some of the systemic inequalities that have existed. So some of those things are talking about them and um, that it's not just sort of blaming the patient for different uh, health situations, but knowing that we as a system need to do better um, and talking about where those inequalities lie. For example, when black women are six times more likely to die in the state of Iowa giving birth, and that's, that's a problem, and that has to do with us. Um, other things are talking about implicit bias, so unconscious biases, and how that help, can contribute to people treating people from different backgrounds differently. Um, to um, talking about microaggressions and those small slights that can, that can be uh, said to people that even though our 
sometimes tiny, but can have a huge impact in whether people seek care or not from that provider ever again. Um, and same with um, uh, even cultu understanding culturally responsive care. So here we have Culture Vision. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that before, but it's an online software um, that gets updated all the time where you can look at potential norms, beliefs, and practices of different people. And it isn't to provide information to tell you how to do things, but it's provide you information so that you know how to ask actually better questions to the patient. Because you don't know what you don't know. And so, so for example, um, they uh, started this um, uh, culture vision because a, a certain labor and delivery ward uh, had patients who believed very strongly in hot and cold. So there are certain ailments that are considered hot or cold and you treat with opposite temperature food or drink. And a lot of the women were getting dehydrated because pregnancy was considered a cold state. And you give, uh, what do you give on labor and delivery? Ice. Ice, yeah, so ice and ice water. Um, and so a lot of women were declining that. But if you knew something about that particular cultural or background, you could just ask the patient, what temperature would you like your water? But you might not even ask that question if you didn't have the background to, to ask that question to begin with. That's a really fascinating example. You touched on this just a little bit in your comments, but why is it important to have a diverse workforce? Yeah, so the data shows that people um, tend to treat patients who have their own identity. Um, so rural uh, people who have rural backgrounds tend to treat rural patients. Uh, women tend to treat patients who are women. Um, people with LGBTQ identities will tend to um, have interest in LGBTQ identities. Um, same thing with minorities um, or people who are speak another language. If you are, um, for example, if you're a Spanish speaker, you're more likely to speak or have patients that are Spanish speaking. So, um, because we know that lots of patients don't um, have access to care or that, um, or always feel comfortable with the type of provider that they have, having um, people who identify with all different types of backgrounds, I think, are, are really important. So going back to the story you shared at the very beginning about your grandmother being afraid to go to the doctor, um, one of the conversations we've had in planning this series is about the importance of patients being able to see themselves in their providers. So almost the inverse of what you just said about providers treating patients like them, patients need to be able to see themselves reflected in, uh, in the people treating them. Absolutely. So what sorts of training is available to health professionals who have maybe been practicing for five years, 10 years, 30 years, who want to increase their understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social needs, and gain some cultural training? Yeah, so here at UI Healthcare, we offer, our office offers quite a few trainings, but I also know that a lot of these trainings exist in, in many different locations. So we have trainings on LGBTQ uh, care and what are some of the best practices, um, particularly around transgender care. Um, so here at the University of Iowa, we have over a thousand transgender patients um, in our LGBTQ clinic. And so understanding um, the needs and best practices is really important. Um, we have trainings on microaggressions, implicit bias, upstanders, so what happens when you see things that are not, um, that people are doing that are probably inappropriate and not culturally responsive, and how do you, how do you address that in the moment um, is actually our latest training. So with a more diverse and inclusive workforce, 
um, the majority of discrimination that happens um, to people who are training to become physicians or are physicians actually doesn't come from the environment, it comes from the patients directly. And so we actually have now specific trainings because patients unfortunately have done things like tell, told physicians to take their hijab off or um, get out of their room or um, if there are certain ways refusing to have them be their health care provider or anything um, that is regarding to somebody's identity and how do you, how do you deal with patient-related uh, identity harassment. So do you have any tips for how to do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a hard conversation. And I think that, you know, as care providers, um, we often are told it's not really about us, it's about the patient. Um, and just taking care of the patient and what the needs of the patient are. Um, and so a lot of people, even our trainees, would often just take the harassment, even sexual harassment, which happens quite frequently as well, um, because they felt like they weren't empowered to say or do anything in that physician or student provider role. Um, but actually, that's not the case, that it is important that people speak up and are able to say things. And so some of these trainings, we give people the language to do that. Um, because sometimes you just don't really know what to even say. The other thing that I've really appreciated that here at UI Healthcare, we have an amazing legal team that if a patient is discriminating against a certain provider or person, oftentimes the easy thing to do would just be to switch that person out for somebody else. Um, but UI Healthcare has really stood with its providers um, and trainees and um, staff and if something happens, that they will ask that patient to leave. Wow. And that they can provide care. Some, they can That's a care pretty strong else. stance. Correct. Supporting Rather than just saying sort staff, of yeah. just uh, slipping it under the rug that we take that really seriously. I think you mentioned microaggressions earlier in the conversation. And I think especially people of color experience those on a daily basis, no yeah. matter what the situation or environment. Yeah, no matter what kind of workplace you're in. Yeah. But when you're in such a um, intimate and sensitive area like a doctor's office or in an appointment, that adds a whole new level of complexity to Absolutely. that kind of interaction. Absolutely. Both ways, both from the patient to the provider, but also the provider to the patient. And a lot of times, especially with microaggressions, you know, people don't realize even the, the comments or things that they do, even though they're um, not, the intention isn't to offend or cause harm, you know, the impact is really true when it's there. And so it's bringing awareness to those things that a lot of people haven't ever even thought about in their own behavior. One of my favorite analogies for this is lifting a ton of feathers. Yes, yes. So that oh, one thing true. might not matter, but when yeah. it's the 10,000th you've heard this week, it makes yeah. a big difference. Or I know that the, I think the originator of the term microaggression, uh, she uh, said it was like death by a thousand paper cuts. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that, that's another good analogy. So one of the things that we're trying to do, um, partly with this series on health equity, but also in all of the work we do as a training center, is to try to infuse all of our work with an equity lens or an equity mindset. So what is something that healthcare providers or public health practitioners can do, like an easy step or an easy couple of things to think about so that equity is constantly something they are striving for? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that people don't understand often in positions of power and in leadership um, that 
when you are a first-generation college student or you are the first in your family to ever go to medical school. So, for example, at my white coat ceremony, they asked all the doctors to stand up in the white coat ceremony for the medical school when you that first week of medical school and um, say the Hippocratic Oath. And so if anybody in the audience was a doctor, that they should all stand up as well. And like three quarters of the audience stood up because everybody's parents except mine were doctors as well. Wow. And so a lot of people think that they've made it just on their, you know, on their own and all the work that they've done to get there. But there's been a lot of obstacles and barriers um, for people from lots of different backgrounds to access and become leaders or even get into places like medical school. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think thinking holistically um, about, you know, who is in leadership and why and um, and who maybe should be in leadership and why or who should be chosen to get into medical school. The You know, there's a huge emphasis on MCAT scores, like, for example, to get into medical school. Um, but the data shows that the strongest indicator of how high somebody's um, MCAT score is is their family income. And so, and we often choose um, students a lot based on how high their MCAT is. So, People often think in, in this work, oh, it's, you know, these certain people are successful um, because they deserve it most or work the hardest. But in reality, there are so many barriers to so many others that um, that in these these halls of power that we need to be thinking more holistically about. Great. Well, that is a good note to end on. So thank you so much for your time today. The Summer Health Professions Experience Program is an impressive and extensive program that has helped to pave the way for thousands of underrepresented health professionals. Diversifying the health profession's workforce, including public health, is a vitally important part of decreasing inequities. We also need to work with the existing public health workforce to advance equity in our health departments and communities. The Lawrence-Douglas County Health Department in Lawrence, Kansas, is working very intentionally within their health department and community on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm very excited to have three representatives from the health department join us today. Christina Gentry is a community liaison at Lawrence Douglas County Public Health in Kansas. Her professional background is in early childhood education with an emphasis in STEM-based early development curriculum. She is a staunch advocate for Black women and women of color and works aggressively to bring awareness to the health issues affecting underrepresented and minoritized identities in Douglas County. Christina's Equity Lens focuses on eliminating the structures that make certain identities the consequences of the vehicle for vulnerability. She is an educator, a mother, and a lifetime student. Sarah Hartzig is a community health planner at Lawrence Douglas County Public Health. She works in community health policy and planning, where she coordinates and implements initiatives to improve health equity, address social determinants of health, and support healthy behaviors. Prior to working at the health department, Sarah worked at the Kansas Health Institute, where she contributed to and led projects in health impact assessment, health in all policies, and community health assessment and improvement planning. Sonia Jordan serves as the Director of Informatics for Lawrence Douglas County Public Health. She is passionate about using data and analytics to make a difference in the lives of Douglas County residents. She has worked in public health informatics, health equity, infectious disease, and public health preparedness. Previously, Sonia has worked with the Kansas Department of Health and Environment and the Department of Health and Human Services. 
She lives in Lawrence, Kansas with her husband and two boys. So Sonia, Christina, and Sarah, thank you so much for joining Share Public Health today. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So before we get started into kind of the meat of this conversation, I'd really love if you could just share some context for our listeners. So tell us a little bit about the health department you work with and your community. We work at the Lawrence Douglas County Health Department, uh, which is the um, health department uh, for the city of Lawrence and Douglas County in Northeast Kansas. Uh, it is where the University of Kansas is located, where some people uh, may be familiar with that. We are a fairly large county for Kansas standards. We have about 120,000 people. Um, which I think makes us about the fifth most populous county in the state. Racially and ethnically, we are not very diverse. We are still about 80% uh, white in our county. Our health department is what we would consider to be a medium-sized health department. We have about 40 to 45 people at any given time. Uh, but within the past three to five years, we started to really focus more on how we can move the needle with our efforts on um, not only the community health, community's health, but on issues like health equity. Lawrence was the site of a big fight to make sure that Kansas would be a free state and not part of the Confederacy, right? So Missouri next door um, was, was part of the South. Um, and so I think people here are really proud of those roots and those anti-slavery roots and um, see themselves as, you know, very, like Sonia said, progressive and equitable and welcoming of everyone. Um, but when you really get down to it, we struggle with the same issues of racism and discrimination that any community does. Um, and I think that our identity in being proud of those anti-slavery roots often um, gives us an excuse to look the other way and say, well, we don't have a problem. Um, that doesn't happen here. Uh, and 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 that's really not the case. Uh, similarly, with Haskell, the Indian Nations University um, that's that's nearby, um, we've got we've had historically a, a large population of Native Americans um, who've lived in and around Lawrence, and and you know there was a boarding school um, for Native Americans in Lawrence um, that have very negative consequences that people don't want to talk about or think about. And so I think um, when you layer that really interesting history uh, with our identity and also reality, um, you get the opportunity for some interesting conversations. You and your health department put together a kind of committee to work on some of these topics. So could you um, describe what that work was, um, what the kind of charge for the committee is, why you decided this was important. Our health equity committee started a few years ago, and the the charge was really to identify um, what we can do as a health department to promote health equity. So it was pretty vague overall. Um, and we encourage staff members to apply to be on the committee. Um, the application was simple. It was just a question of why this mattered to you. And what we discovered after getting the group together was that this work was not as simple 
or as easy as we thought it would be and would require a lot of learning and a lot of building of trust and building of companionship. And so we really spent about, I would say close to six months to a year, really focusing on those things, shared learning, coming to a shared definition of health equity, coming to a shared pur purpose for our committee. Um, that purpose ended up being trying to focus on some of the internal policies within the health department and then trying to focus after that on some of our external features, or I guess I should say maybe more of our external um, policy um, after we had taken the time to look internally first. Yeah, thank you, Sonia. Um, so I was introduced to the group by um, a man who's no longer with us named Jonathan Herrera Thomas. Uh, he came up to me and asked me if I would come and be a part of the group, um, and I agreed um, because he made it sound like it was something that would definitely speak to the work that I do. I work as a community liaison here at the health department, but with a grant from Kansas Health Foundation that makes me and my office um, be the community. So um, in order to understand the community, I need to listen to the community. And my voice here at the health department has been one of raising community awareness as issues as they pertain to our most marginalized identities. Uh, so we understand that um, equity and equality are different, right? So understanding that equality is the outcome of a process that involves equity. And to me, um, being a black woman uh, and being a woman who's lived in Lawrence for a number of years, I realize there's some unequitable things going on personally, but understanding our health equity report data reflects that data being um, as our marginalized identities are I identified as having um, a racial background, for instance, is 80% white and are home to Kansas University. We also have Haskell Nations, Indian Nations University. So the demographics uh, speak to our, our, our Douglas County as being um, progressive and, and trying to incorporate diversity. And so I think my position as, as the chair now for about what, a month and a half has been mm -hmm. to uh, continue to promote diversity um, as it looks on the outside topically and then explore ways that we can um, delve into what diversity and true inclusivity looks like. Sonia, you mentioned that the first year or so was a lot of internal work and emotional work and building trust. Uh, could you describe some of the tactics you used within the group to build that trust? One of the things we did was to come up with a charter. Um, and that charter was to guide how we interacted with each other in meetings. So for instance, um, being respectful to each other's uh, voices or trying not to overspeak or interrupt someone. These things that would allow people to feel comfortable bringing their self to this meeting. Um, you know, the adaptive work is building the space of making sure that that is actually honored for people. We did a lot of uh, shared learning. We read a book, it's actually a graphic novel called March um, from the Civil Rights Era. We uh, watched a uh, TED Talk by Dr. Jones on race and racism, which gave us a fantastic um, framework for which to work from to understand 
uh, racism as it exists in society today. Uh, we read a couple of articles as well because a lot of our members of our group were coming to this with not even a true understanding of what health equity meant, including myself. So I needed to just put in the work of understanding academically what we were talking about even, um, much less emotionally. We just tried to take a lot of opportunities to give space um, for both shared learning, but also emotional learning about each other. Um, one of the strategies that we did was to meet off-site. We would meet in different locations around the city to just try to increase the sense of um, companionship with one another. Um, when I joined the group, which was in January of 19, the, the kind of original Health Equity Committee had put together, um, they had done a survey of staff members about kind of their concerns um, related to equity. And from that, they had put together kind of a, a prioritized work plan. Um, so when I jumped in, it was a lot of like action oriented, like get things done, accomplishment type stuff. Um, when I jumped in, there was a lot less of the kind of emotional um, and personal learning, I think, um, that, that had happened in the first year. Um, and so but it was it was exciting, though, because very quickly after um, I joined the group, um, there were some accessibility modifications approved and implemented in our health department. Um, a living wage was passed uh, and we put together a tool to assess policies um, in the health department, a health equity impact assessment tool. I think just to realize kind of the um, the magnitude of the divides and the magnitude of wealth distribution in the country. Um, and then we went from there to a book called Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit, um, which was sort of lessons on activism and making a difference. Um, and then after that, the next one we read was the Book of Unknown Americans, which is about um, immigration, um, immigration into, into the United States and just kind of stories of of immigrants, particularly from Latin America. So this health equity um, book club sounds really great. You mentioned earlier in in this conversation about some of the internal structure things that you have focused on, including accessibility changes, um, living wage, and a health equity impact assessment tool that you're using internally. Could you talk a little bit about that and why you decided to focus on internal things uh, instead of looking to what you can do in your community? I think it's important when you're doing health equity work, equity work in general, to be introspective and to, under, to understand your, your own underlying identities and how they intersect. So I think the internal process comes with understanding how adaptive you're going to have to be. Um, so as an understanding of the books you can read, it's, it's really understanding how as a health department you go out and, and you, you are um, looked at or you look at yourself or how you um, deal with and communicate with your community. Um, so you have to understand a little bit about how you present yourself. And when you're going into spaces, understanding how, if we understand inequities and understand the community, what we are presenting um, and, and when we go out into the community. So I think it was um, 
taking the emotional aspect of it and taking the inter understanding internal uh, structures that, that our, our um, community represents. I think it's important to do some work um, within your group, understanding your own identities as what you present when you go out. So in order to really kind of understand that even if you're not uh, outwardly presenting an inequity or a, a hardship or a, um, a structure, like I can't look at you and tell that you have um, maybe a, a, you suffer from bipolar uh, or being a person who suffers from depression or of a person who's not outwardly um, handicapped or someone who just has a learning disability or ability, we like to say is disability with capital A. Um, and understanding those things, you, you may not be outwardly um, looking or presenting to be a person who's from Latinx, um, but those are things we need to understand about each other. So I think it's great to found, ground yourself as a group um, when doing equity work to realize your own um, perceptions of who you are and to own those in a way you, you're outwardly talking about those so that we can do the work as it pertains to understanding how each other are. Uh, but we also work structurally, we are working on um, making our um, access to our building more um, accessible. So we have people coming in to do a checklist tomorrow morning, matter of fact, to come around and make sure that if you are walking or uh, walking around our structure, that we are able to provide access to the facilities in a way that the person using a wheelchair, it has access to. That would be what I would really kind of make a, a stress on is like taking into account you're working with equity work, but also doing the work that you need to do to strengthen yourself in that group. Mm -hmm. And that's really important because you are doing work outward, but there's still so much that humanizes this work that needs to be addressed too. As an organization, we really decided to focus on kind of our own internal policies, the living wage and, and things like that, because we're also, of course, we're thinking externally, too. Um, and, you know, it, it, we've had conversations of, well, if we're championing these things in, in public, if we're championing a living wage policy for our community or we're championing um, family friendly workplaces uh, and we're championing talking about diversity and embracing diversity among employees and recruiting um, employees who are historically underrepresented um, in in the public health workforce we have to start with ourselves um, and so we can't point the finger at somebody else and say you should do this um, because we don't know all the ins and outs of what that it takes to walk that. So I think um, starting with our own internal policies was really an intentional place to, um, to set an example for peers. One of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you all today is because I'm really impressed by the way you, um, you're really trying to practice what you preach and not go out and um, promote all kinds of policies or programs or changes that you're not willing to you know, deeply consider and implement in your own organizations or in your own lives. So um, I'm wildly impressed by the work you all are doing and I'm very grateful that you're sharing some of your work and some of your journey with our listeners today. Um, one thing that was mentioned was accessibility. And I think um, because of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, this is a topic that a lot of people um, might not think about as still being 
something that we need to really be thinking about with our buildings and our spaces. So can you talk a little bit about what some of those accessibility considerations or changes are that you've all looked at? The big one that kind of we started with, I think was kind of a, it was a, a situation where we realized we didn't have the, um, the electronic assist on our clinic doors. And we thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> we really need to have that. It was almost like, oh, we're a little bit embarrassed that we don't have that already. Um, and so that was, that was kind of the first step in um, getting to where we should be, but then also kind of made us aware that there are other steps that we could be taking to be more welcoming for people of all abilities. Um, and that, that's part of the checklist that Christina mentioned that's gonna be happening tomorrow. I think another thing that occurred when we released the health equity report in November of 2018, one of the things that we neglected to put in was anything um, regarding persons or people with a disability. And it was not an intentional oversight, but it was an oversight nonetheless when some of our partners who work in the field um, reached out to us from the University of Kansas, one of the things that we discussed was um, beyond, you know, myself feeling kind of embarrassed for having incidentally left that out, um, we discussed, okay, so what are some ways that we can move forward to make progress in this area? So the, the new version of the health equity report will include a section on health inequities and outcomes uh, related to persons with a disability here in Douglas County. We also invited um, some of our co colleagues to come and speak at a general staff meeting. And this also led to the checklist that Christina mentioned, which is occurring tomorrow. And so they will, we have an intern who, who works in the the field, but our checklist looks to be like um, things like a structure. How large is our room so that if someone is using a wheelchair that is accessible and they can fit through and someone can be able to be mobile in between the corridors and how accessible is um, our whole structure, our entire um, health department as a whole. We have three floors, so we have to really realize that um, that's able-bodied uh, accessible is just not where we want to stop. Um, we need to make sure we go deeper into making sure that even the offices where we are examining um, our patients are easily get, you know, there's some getting up to. Uh, it, it has to be um, something that we have to move electronically. Even the desk where we welcome our patients needs to be accessible to someone who is in a seated position. Mm -hmm. So these are all things that we'll be looking into and I'm sure be making adjustments. Mm -hmm. This is a process. And unless you're willing to really kind of forgive yourself for the things you don't know and understand that, that we as a group have to go together and, and learn together, then I think that's the foundation you build upon by saying, hey, we understand this now, what can we know? And, and knowing that what you don't know is the process that is really exciting is <laughs> got to be something as a group you come together and, and kind of um, make sure that there's synergized energy around, right? Because it's overwhelming when you realize, uh-oh, we didn't have that. How could we not have that? But that came as a process too, understanding like 
some of the information that you know you're reading in the books and we're sharing uh, someone knows that like the back of their hand they live that experience so it's not going to be something that they don't know but until you get into the spaces and you have those conversations you don't really understand someone's narrative yeah and I, I do think it is nice that it, it was something that started as a mistake it was something that was started as a an oversight an oversight yeah that's the perfect word and you know, because both parties were willing to come together and work on something, now we've had these new exciting things happening. Um, and, you know, it could have easily gone in a different direction. Mm -hmm. So, but it didn't. It went in a positive direction. Right. Yeah, this is such an important point because um, health equity and health equity topics can be so big and um, many of them are uncomfortable for a lot of people. So, it's really important to recognize and understand that there will be oversights and you might be embarrassed if you don't think about something at some point, but being patient with yourself and forgiving yourself and um, just trying to move in the right direction is really important and there might be hurdles along the way and keeping going in that right direction is really important despite those oversights. I think that's important like both personally and organizationally, just to kind of have that humility to realize that you don't know everything and you're willing to admit mistakes, um, but then to also give other people grace too um, and and realize that we're all on a journey together um, and to be willing to engage. And I think I, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't mention that we have um, the director of the health department who's pretty supportive. His name is Dan Partridge. And he is um, supportive of um, the health equity team and of things like, you know, the living wage, for instance. I think it could be easy for a, an, an administrator or a director of a local health department to, you know, pretty easily block a lot of this kind of stuff. Or to find it threatening. Or to find it threatening. He's been more often than not open to that and to making progress and to trying to push um, some of the messaging. And I remember specifically when we were talking about the health equity report and we were going out into the community and we were talking about some of the root causes of health inequities that occur within our community. And I remember asking him, is it okay with you if I explicitly talk about racism? And his response was, why wouldn't you? And so that may seem like an obvious answer, but I have heard stories and anecdotes from colleagues at other health departments where that is not allowed or they are not allowed to talk about that in such a frank manner. Mm -hmm. So that is really a blessing. Yeah, that's great. And it's, it's good to hear that you all have um, such a supportive uh, director and also good to see that this is kind of grassroots work happening with staff coming together on this committee but kind of meeting in the middle between the director and you all. So uh, you've mentioned a couple of times uh, living wage change. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you saw that as being uh, part of health equity? So I think you know when we talk about um, a lot of what's in our community health plan uh, here in Douglas County um, 
we talk about issues that go into kind of the social determinants of health, such as housing affordability, um, poverty and well-paying jobs, and of course the the issues of kind of discrimination connected with that. But just a realization that in many parts of the county, um, people aren't being paid what it takes to um, afford decent housing and um, the basic necessities of life. And so just thinking about um, again, what's needed in our community is really uh, a realization that that we should be paying people um, a living wage so that they can afford a decent living for themselves and their family. Um, and this was a priority uh, for, for our director um, to make sure that the health department was, was leading in that way. Um, we're not the first organization in Douglas County to adopt a living wage, um, but it was, um, it was a priority for him. And so um, there's a lot of different um, iterations of how it can be calculated and resources online and inputs into a living wage. Um, but in the end, we went with a quote unquote kind of housing wage, the um, the universal living wage calculator, which is the uh, the wage that's needed to afford a two bedroom apartment in Douglas County. Um, and so so that's what was adopted um, by our admin team. Um, the board recommended that Dan, our director, put together a budget uh, that reflected that, and then that was approved and will go into effect January of 2020. Um, and so that affects uh, primarily our uh, folks who are working in um, hourly kind of front desk entry level jobs um, and is for some people a, a substantial difference in what they were being paid for before. And understanding equity, too, as it pertains to our population, um, we understand that statistically significant higher rates of poverty are in our people of color. So we understand that there's, a, there's health disparities by race. There's health disparities and gaps that exist by place, and we understand there's a disparity as an education. So taking all those into account, Douglas County not being um, substantially large, but it, our black population makes up 4.6%, uh, currently 5.4% of our population. Um, so we have to understand that we have a, a responsibility to uh, take this information that we've been collecting and data that we've been collecting as far as our disparities and do something actionably. Um, to resolve that and so I am kind of happy and proud to be a part of the health department that makes that initial move but to know that as we're making those steps actionably to set the um, the bar high for ourselves so that we can become a anchor institution that makes those changes and hopefully spread that emphasis and that importance out to our community and making ourselves be a, a model for that action. I think a lot of these kind of topics that you're bringing up um, aren't what people initially think of when they think, oh, we need to do some, or we need to think about health equity. Wage isn't frequently the first thing that comes to mind, although, you know, someone's income has a huge impact on their health. You've also mentioned uh, I believe you called it a health equity impact assessment that you've been implementing. Could you talk a little bit about what that is and what it means for your work? Sure. So this is Sarah. Um, and 
Sonia was really the one that kind of started the conversation about a health equity impact assessment. I jumped in and, and kind of uh, uh, helped out with that. My, my background in my previous job, I did a lot of health impact assessment, so HIA work. Um, and this was kind of a similar approach, a similar idea. Um, and really the, the idea was to, when decisions are being made, um, ensure that health equity was being um, considered as part of that decision. Um, so that, that's kind of the basic idea. But we put together a tool um, that asked kind of some guiding questions around what aspects of health equity could this decision um, impact, what different um, geographical regions, uh, what specific populations in our community could be affected by this decision, and then backing that up with available um, research and experience from other communities, uh, with data that we have, um, with kind of uh, subject matter expertise, and then also um, the voice of people who are impacted by whatever policy decision is being made. Um, and then to kind of distill that into a summary and some recommendations. Um, and initially, this was put together as um, a policy review for um, internal policies, which is still be being used for that. Um, but we've also seen it gain some legs for external policies, so community policies and budget decisions that are being made. Um, we have an example from this summer when our Parks and Rec Department was making um, a decision about user fees um, at their facilities, and we were able to bring this tool into that conversation um, to kind of systematically uh, walk through thinking how health equity could be impacted by that decision. Um, and so it's it's really, you know, it's it's not magic. It's a tool just to make sure that um, that health equity is is being thought of and is being prioritized as one of the decision points um, when when policies are being developed or when um, decisions are being made because that's really where you know we see health inequities come about is either because intentionally or unintentionally those impacts weren't considered um, in you know prior decisions um, and and people may not have thought of, you know, what the impacts would have been. Um, and just given a, a little bit of prompt and a little bit of reflection, um, we think that this tool can can pave the way for some more intentional reflection. One of the things that I heard recently that has really stuck with me and resonated with me is this idea that we have uh, historically in the United States had 50, 60, 70 plus years of policies that were intentionally discriminatory. Moving forward, it is not good enough for us to just pass policies without being intentional to that. Mm -hmm. And so it is really important for us to consider the intended and unintended consequences of policies um, if we are to try to dismantle that in an appropriate way. And I think that is what is so beneficial about a tool like the health equity impact assessment. Yeah, that's a really good point. A colleague from the health department and I um, were able to meet uh, and listen to a Dr. Ibram X. Kendi speak. And he has a couple of different, I mean, a couple of really great poignant resources to read. Um, but as it relates to being um, anti-racist, so it's not enough just to be race or against racism. Right. You have to be progressively anti-racist. So 
um, giving you a little bit of, of context on how like your resources that you can create through your health equity work that you do internally and structure of your group. Um, some of the resources I get uh, we're trying to understand is like some, where, where they're starting from and where you are. Um, so if you are ready to have a conversation about how to be progressively anti-racist, well, you can um, you can just kind of follow the path of where your comfort level is, right? So we have people who are talking about really making revolutionary statements and doing the work intentionally in a way that may make some people uncomfortable. Like, so what may be your comfort level is maybe not somewhere or someone else's. Maybe they're uncomfortable with you being stagnant, they feel. So I think it's important if you have resources that you divide them to into like what's really like super revolutionary to you and what's something you can deal with uh, in a small, small kind of way, um, in a way that makes a difference still, but it's not running to where you're feeling like you're overwhelmed with the catch up, right? So I think it's really great to have a health equity book club to do that, to kind of take you in that process and you can go there in a way that's private, in a way that you can kind of um, isolate yourself if you need to, and then come back together as a group. Um, but understand there's a lot of, of great resources that can, and speakers, if you can as a group, uh, try to put yourself in, in spaces and sit down and listen to those speakers and those authors of those groups, uh, of those books. Um, so that way you can understand as a group where you want to go and what direction you need to take. So yeah, if you start understanding how intersection and and your identity affect yourself, then you can understand how even as a person who's say multiracial that has a disability, you can understand how those different aspects of your life come into play when you're moving around our, our community. You have a bit over 40 people in your health department and a much smaller group as part of this committee. What has the response from your colleagues been as you've been uh, talking about some of these topics and implementing some changes? So part of our conversation that I, it maybe is most of the people who are on our committee work on the second floor, which is administration, community health, um, the folks who aren't seeing clients every day, all day. Um, and we tend to have more flexible schedules to do things like have meetings and work on research projects and there are folks down in our clinic who I think have really important perspectives who aren't able to um, engage in this work as meaningfully just because of the way that their time is structured. I don't know that I've experienced any outright kind of like um, resistance to most of what we're doing, um, but I, I do think that there are some folks that feel maybe a little like outsiders to some of the work, and so that's that's something that I hope we can improve on. I would add that um, we meet early in the morning around 8:30, and we have a by uh, we meet we meet twice, um, one for an all staff all group, and then the second one is individual group. So we have subcommittees that work on different aspects and different areas of our strategic plan uh, per se for our work our work group. So we don't have and we would like to have, I would say, a more flexible schedule for allowing staff who are um, hourly to come in for that extra hour. So that comes with a supervisor's approval and you know understanding that some of the things that that even as a structure that we're doing seem to be um, 
putting a, um, a gatekeeper in the way of progress to like even in initially participate in our in our meetings seems to be something that we need to look into. So looking into our future, we need to try to look into ways we make our equity team more equitable, right? And we make opportunities for us to meet in spaces uh, just like we have for our book club, but also for our meetings uh, and looks to making those accessible to folks um, who don't have that opportunity to be there at 8.30 in the morning. And I think I think from a community perspective, the response has been fairly positive as well. Um, obviously, not everyone is always comfortable with the things that we are talking about, and you can see it very clearly on their faces when they're uncomfortable, or at least I can, I feel like. And I think one of the things that I'm still trying to figure out and one of the things that I'm still working on balance for is, you know, at what point do you stop and try to get everyone comfortable on this issue? I don't know. I mean, do you even do that? Do you, or do you just continue moving forward with the people who are willing to um, stick their necks out to also engage in this kind of work? And so I think that's a balance that a lot of communities are going to have to figure out. Um, if we wait for everyone to get on board, we're going to be waiting a long time. Yeah, that's that's a pretty strong good note for us to um, wrap up. Thank you all so very much for joining us today. I think this has been a really good conversation and I'm very excited to get it to uh, listeners of Share Public Health. Do you each have a suggestion or a tip of one thing that people working in health departments can do to be more equitable in their practice? So, I mentioned in my former job, I worked on health impact assessments, and we put together some resources to work with state legislators to think about health and decisions that may not have always been obviously connected to health. So the tagline was always, what about health? Um, and when I got here uh, at the health department, I think my challenge was to myself was to think about in everything I do, what about health equity? And so I wrote it on a sticky note, it's on my computer, and that has just reminded me to think about, you know, when I'm working on something that's healthy eating, active living, tobacco cessation, you know, what, what aspects of health equity are playing into this work and how can I be more mindful of that? Um, so I think that's, that's one, is just to keep it top of mind. Um, and then two is, is really um, to dig deep personally um, and to, to find books and resources out there that challenge you um, and and really kind of open your eyes to perspectives other than yours. And I would build off um, Sarah's second suggestion and say to take the time to not only get to know yourself and the identities that you are bringing and the identities that your colleagues are bringing with you to work, but if you are somebody of privilege, to really take the time to critically examine what that means for you and what that means for other people in your life and to be open to the potential that you are potentially indicted in that situation. So the interpretations that are occurring are not always going to be positively um, are positively reflecting on you and to be open to that, to be open to things like 
implicit bias and how that manifests in your job, how that manifests as a clinic worker, how does that manifest as an epidemiologist. So just taking that time to be very thoughtful and critical. Right, and I would go back to that definition of equality and equity, right, and constantly challenge yourself to make sure that the process is part of the work that you're doing to create uh, the outcome of equality. Uh, and to understand that we're not all starting from the same spaces, we're not all starting from the same starting line, and a lot of us have different aspects and realities that and narratives that you may not understand. Um, but like I said, being open, I think like Sonia said and Sarah said about being open to being introspective and always really looking into yourself to see why is it that you are feeling a way about something. Um, I would say also, you know, there's there's constantly, I mean, as a woman um, in my life, I have to constantly challenge myself with making sure that I'm speaking the language that people are wanting to be said or, or be respected as, right? So using pronouns is becoming like something I challenge myself to do, to constantly not associate genders uh, with people. So I think it's always a process that you're constantly learning and it can be exciting for you to try to challenge the narrative of your own life and your own perspective of your lived experiences. So I think taking that into account and understanding that you don't know like some things, even if your position of power and privilege, those words like mean something and, and you have ownership and you could take ownership of those things. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Rima Afifi, Ann Crotty, Alejandro Scoto, Paul Gilbert, Casey Ginn, Mike Honig, Kathleen May, Felicia Pieper, Melissa Richland, Hannah Schultz, and Lori Wachner. Theme music for Share Public Health is composed by Dave Hohen and Roger Heilman. Funding for this webinar is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript.